Facebook collects tons of user data, as you're probably already well aware, but just how much data do they collect? If you're planning on advertising with Facebook, or if you're just a Facebook user, you're probably going to want to hear this. Also, WordPress version 4.6 came out a little while back. We'll dive into some of the key features that you're going to want to know about if you are a WordPress user. Also, are you planning on publishing a book? If so, it's good to know what people are using to read these days. Are people reading print books, ebooks, smartphones, tablets? What are they using to read with? We're going to dive into a Pew Research Center study that dives into this exact topic. Also, I'll explore a recent rebrand I did for a website called therightscoop.com. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is The Rightly Designed Show. So to start with, you've probably noticed a little bit of a different format on the Rightly Designed Show if you've listened to it before. Uh, And we're going to do something a little bit different in the sense that I'm going to go ahead and wrap in a few extra news items that are relevant to design, branding, marketing, and WordPress, just so that I can pack in as much useful and valuable information into a half an hour as is humanly possible. So the goal here, as always, is to make uh, the Rightly Designed Show as useful as possible, and that's what I'm going to aim to do. So to start with, one of the things I had mentioned at the top of the show was Facebook and the amount of data that they are collecting. So as you probably know, Facebook collects a lot of data. That's just part of what they've always done. That's a part of their advertising scheme. That's the way that they are able to sort of monetize you as a user. Uh, You know, the old adage, uh, as it is said, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And that kind of seems to be the way it is, especially with all the data that they are collecting. So there was an article that came out recently in The Sun, which actually details 98 pieces of information that Facebook is currently collecting on Facebook users. And it's pretty astounding. So I'm going to leave links to this article and all the other ones that I mentioned in today's show notes, which you can find at rightlydesignedshow.com slash 24. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Uh, Lots of interesting things to check out, especially uh, this list, which is pretty amazing. So I'm just going to read a a quick snippet from the article just to give you an idea. Uh, So it says the result has been a digital goldmine in response to, you know, what Facebook has been doing in terms of collecting data. In just three months this year, Facebook made 4.8 billion pounds. So this is actually a UK article from ad sales because it could point advertisers to exactly the people they were after. But how did Facebook get that data in the first place? Much of it, the answer is simple, because you told it. Your profile gives the site your name, age, relationship status, and so on. But it also knows what you quote-unquote like. Every time you hit the thumbs up button, whether it's on a pop star, a football team, or a TV show, Facebook is adding that detail to its file on you. And since Facebook's billions of users spend an average of 50 minutes a day on its site and Instagram, which it also owns, that's an awful lot of clicks. 
It can then fill in the blanks by looking at, uh, at other people who, quote unquote, like the same things as you, assuming that you probably have other likes in common as well. So the article goes into quite a bit of detail into, you know, how Facebook has been doing this, the different strategies they've employed. And again, it, it all surrounds the concept of them wanting to be able to make their advertising as accurate and as effective as possible. So take from that what you will. Here is uh, just a sampling of some of the data that they are collecting on their users. So this is just 19. As I mentioned, there's 98 of these. That's pretty amazing. Uh, so here's, here's the first 19. So they're collecting your age, uh, your location, generation, gender, language, education level, field of study, school, ethnic background, income and net worth, home ownership and type of home, value of home, size of your property, square footage of home, the year your home was built, who lives in your house, whether you have an anniversary approaching in the next month, if you're living away from family or hometown, and whether you're friends with someone who has an anniversary, is newly married or engaged, recently moved, or has an upcoming birthday. So again, that's only 19, and there's 98 of these. So I highly recommend if you are a Facebook user or if you're planning on advertising or just interested at all with the privacy of Facebook, uh, definitely worth checking out. Okay, the other uh, item I was going to uh, go into today uh, is relevant to if you are a WordPress user. So WordPress recently uh, released version 4.6 and they've got some pretty nifty new features that they've included. So I'm just gonna go ahead and uh, to start with, just play uh, the audio from the video that they uh, released going into some of these features. WordPress 4.6 Pepper, named for jazz legend Pepper Adams, gets you where you need to go faster, whether you're adding a theme, updating your site's plugins, or navigating the WordPress dashboard. WordPress 4.6 includes a simpler workflow for adding and activating new themes or plugins on your site. Now you will never lose your place when performing these tasks. Everything happens right on one screen. Improvements to the editor in WordPress 4.6 make it smarter than ever. If you add a broken link, WordPress will let you know, allowing you to update the link before publishing it to your site. If you lose your internet connection while writing, it's good to know that drafts are now saved locally to your browser. When you return to edit, WordPress notifies you if there is a more recent draft, so nothing gets lost. You may also notice that fonts are slightly different when managing your site. Your WordPress dashboard now uses the same native fonts as your operating system, which means pages load faster and performance is improved overall. In addition to everything you see, WordPress 4.6 includes a host of performance and stability improvements to the software you rely on every day. WordPress 4.6 Pepper a focused update that gets you where you need to go, faster. So that gives you a pretty good idea of some of the features that they've worked into the latest version of WordPress. Some of the things I'll expound on a little bit uh, are, for example, the streamlined updates. So that was touched on. And in practice, if you haven't already experienced these, 
it just kind of makes the user experience a lot quicker when you're working through the WordPress admin. So what I've noticed is like if you're trying to install a new plugin rather than having to, you know, click it, then it jumps to a new page, then you click install, then you wait, then you click activate. It's all in one seamless motion. So you just click, you know, you search through the repository and then you click install. It sits there for a second and it spins and then the button turns into an activate button. You click activate and it activates the plugin. So everything is just generally a lot quicker. So that's always great. And that's one of the wonderful things about WordPress is they're always improving and making things uh, better in terms of their user experience. In terms of the fonts, they were using one called Open Sans, which is just a like a Google font. So the idea behind removing that would be it's just one less resource that WordPress has to call upon. So the less resources that your website has to rely upon, the faster it's going to load. So they just stripped out that extra font and just rely upon the one that's native in your computer with your browser. So that's naturally just going to make things quicker. The inline link checker is actually pretty useful. I've already used this a couple of times myself uh, in that as you're typing through an article and you know, you're linking to different things, it turns red. Uh, if you are linking to something that's like a dead or broken link, which is really handy, especially if you're going back and editing old articles that may have things that are out of date, that comes in pretty useful. And then the content recovery, they've already had that to some degree. So you've already been able to recover lost data that's, you know, been saved in your browser. It's just been improved. So full on drafts rather than just changes can actually be saved in your browser, which again is useful if you, uh, if your browser crashes or if you lose information, you know, if you lose your internet connection or something like that comes in really handy. So they also added a whole bunch of extra developer features. So things are just smoother, cleaner, faster in general. So that's always great. So again, if you'd like to check out that video, I'm going to have that over at rightlydesigned.com as well. Okay, so the next item I was going to touch on today was a really interesting study that was done by Pew Research. So this comes in really helpful if you are planning on publishing a book. So it's important to know when you're publishing a book, you know, in what medium you're going to provide that. Are you going to do a print book? Are you going to do an ebook? Are you going to do an ebook only? Are you going to do a print book only? Uh, I've spent about, you know, a little over 10 years in the publishing industry now. What I typically recommend for most people is do both. Uh, there was this craze, you know, probably about four or five years ago where a lot of people were saying the print book is dead because they're looking at the stats and uh, they were looking at the, the massive increase in the amount of people who were starting to consume information on an ebook reader and ebooks were just so prevalent so but this uh, article uh, or the study I should say demonstrates some pretty interesting things to keep in mind so it's it brings to light the question are print books dead you know are ebooks taking over so this study found that just six percent of Americans are reading books on a digital only basis. So that's just 6% are ebook only. Uh, 38% of Americans are print books only. So this is a bit of a decline from like 10 years back. However, uh, from that time period when people were kind of saying that, you know, ebooks are just taking over the market, it just really hasn't happened. So to break things down, uh, people who, you know, don't read anything, so read no books, 26%. Uh, 
read both print and digital books, 28%, read only digital books, 6%, and read only print books uh, is 38%. So a plurality of people are reading uh, only print books. So again, if you're planning on publishing a book and you're considering, yeah, maybe I'll just go the ebook only route because it's more affordable or, you know, everybody's using, uh, you know, ebook devices these days, you may just want to consider the fact that a lot of people out there, at least 30%, 38% of this market share, the people that they are, are, uh, you know, they're polling are only reading print books. That's really important to keep in mind. And that's, again, why regardless of these different polls that come out, you know, I've been asked in the past before, you know, should I do a print book? Should I do an ebook? I always just recommend just do both. Uh, you're going to be safe that way. And I'd go a step further. I'd say do both and do an audiobook. And that may be because I'm biased. I mainly listen to audiobooks. But uh, anyways, you get the idea. If you're going to do, if you're going for a book, I typically recommend, uh, you know, print plus the ebook. Now, they did actually, within that study, they, they mentioned a ton of different information. So again, if you're, if you're going to be publishing a book, I'd recommend checking it out in its entirety. But I'll just read this, this extra snippet from the study, which was also really interesting. This is, but while print remains at the center of the book reading landscape as a whole, there has been a distinct shift in the ebook landscape over the last five years. Americans increasingly turn to multi-purpose devices such as smartphones and tablet computers rather than dedicated e-readers when they engage with an ebook with ebook content. The share of ebook readers on tablets has more than tripled since 2011 and the number of readers on phones has more than doubled over that time while the share uh, the share reading on ebook reading devices has not changed. And smartphones are playing an especially prominent role in the e-reading habits of certain demographic groups, such as non-whites and those who have not attended college. So all that to say is within the ebook reading, uh, you know, demographic or community, most people are reading on a tablet or a smartphone. So that's also important to keep in mind uh, as well as, you know, in terms of the formats that you provide, you know, you're considering whether you're going to provide an EPUB or a Mobi or all the different uh, versions that are out there. It's important to keep in mind that, uh, or at least to be aware that uh, an increasing amount of people are reading smart on smartphones and tablets. It doesn't necessarily say right here that the ebook reader market is dropping, but it's not increasing as the uh, multi-purpose devices are. So very interesting information. Again, all these articles are going to be available. I'm going to link to them in today's show notes, which is just rightlydesignedshow.com slash 24. So I'm also going to talk today about a rebrand that I did uh, and some things that we can kind of learn from that rebrand. But before I do, I wanted to take a quick moment to mention today's sponsor, which is FreshBooks. If you've never used FreshBooks before, I highly recommend them. So I've been using them for several years now for all my accounting needs. I do all my time tracking, my invoicing, you know, reports, and pretty much all my accounting related things are done through FreshBooks, and it's super easy to do. Uh, as a listener to the Rightly Designed show, uh, FreshBooks is going to offer you a 30-day free trial, which you're able to try out. Highly recommend. Just jump in there, test it out, see if it's for you. If you do any type of accounting or invoicing, 
uh, FreshBooks is definitely the way to go. So highly recommend you check it out. And you can do that at gofreshbooks.com slash rightly designed. Again, you want to make sure that you add the slash rightly designed with an ED at the end, just so they know that we sent you. Again, that's gofreshbooks.com slash rightly designed and enter rightly designed in the how did you hear about us section. Have a question about design, branding, marketing, or WordPress? Take a quick moment to visit rightlydesign.com slash question and record your question for the show. If it's featured in an episode, we'll send you a free Rightly Designed idea book as our thanks. Get all the information at rightlydesigned.com slash question. Okay, so one of the things I mentioned at the top of the program that I was going to dive into today was a rebrand that I recently did uh, for a website called The Right Scoop. So The Right Scoop is a news and political website, so obviously I'm not going to dive into the, the politics of the website today. But I, what I will jump into and what I think will be really useful is the process or some of the key points to keep in mind if you are going to be doing a rebrand. So these are things that I implemented into the rebrand of this website. So two of the main key factors that I did in the, the rebrand was a new logo design. And with that, like a new favicon or a new avatar that went along with the logo. And then a completely new uh, site design as well. So and everything just kind of matched a similar style and that sort of thing. So before, and what I'm going to do is I'll leave some screenshots in today's show notes, which again is rightlydesignedshow.com slash 24. But I'll leave some screenshots in today's show notes so you can kind of take a look at the before and after and get a little bit of an idea of the thinking and the process that went into, you know, looking at the previous site and then creating the new the new version. So again, some things to keep in mind. I've got three main points that I'll dive into that went into this rebrand, things that you can apply to your own rebrand. So if you already have a logo design or you already have a website or you have a, a brand that's fairly established and you want to do a rebrand, uh, or even if you're just creating a new brand, these are some things that you can keep in mind to help make sure that it, is, it goes as successfully as possible. So the first thing, and this is specific to a rebrand, obviously, um, is the importance of creating a familiar yet improved look and feel. What I mean by that is when you're doing a new brand, it cannot be completely foreign to the one that preceded it. Uh, this was actually tried a while back by a company called Tropicana. I think it was Tropicana. Off the, yeah, it was Tropicana. So what it was is that they created, they had this packaging design that people were really familiar with. And Tropicana is orange juice, if you're not remembering or, or recognizing the name. And what happened was they created a rebrand that was so starkly different from the one that they did previously that they were watching sales decline. Part of what Tropicana had going for them was they were a premium brand. You can buy just regular non-brand, you know, store brand, uh, you know, orange juice. And then you could buy Tropicana brand. The problem was that it was such a great leap from their previous brand that they were no longer being perceived as a premium brand. The look and the feel of the new brand made them blend in with or be mistaken for one of the generic brands. So they actually saw a decrease in their sales from that, you know, from that rebrand that they did. 
they found that after they shifted back, you know, after some of the research they did, they shifted back to the classic premium brand that they had done before in terms of the look and the feel of the packaging. And again, they saw those sales start to grow again. So it's important if you've already established a brand and it's known for something that when you create a new version of it, should you ever choose to do so, that it is done in such a way as to be uh, at least familiar to those who are used to it. So that was one of the goals that went into creating the right scoop. I took their previous logo and I create kind of a fresh, clean, modernized version of it. So that's really, really important. That also went for the website. So the website was done in such a way as to create, you know, a different user experience and, you know, a lighter weight, more simple. But at the same time, the color scheme remained pretty similar. Uh, it remained very familiar in the layout. So things were very much in the same place that they were before. Fonts changed, but again, uh, only slightly. So there's a fine line to walk between rebranding and giving something a fresh look and feel and creating a new experience for users and for customers and completely flipping it on them to the point where uh, they are just completely thrown off by it. They don't recognize you anymore. So uh, maybe in a future episode, what I'll do is I'll, I'll go through some specific examples of rebrands because I know, you know, Coca-Cola, we touched on that a little while back, but McDonald's and Nike and all the major brands that you're used to have gone through rebrands throughout the course of their, you know, their time as companies and as brands. They've done so very iterative, iteratively, you know, uh, to not only improve it, but also to remain true to the original brand purpose and identity. So that was an important part of doing this rebrand and something that you can keep in mind, you know, as you consider your own rebrands or branding practices. Number two, when doing a rebrand and when doing a logo design in general, it's important for that logo to be as timeless as possible. Timelessness is something that is at the heart of the best brands in existence. You could think of, again, I mentioned Coca-Cola, that uh, the, you know, the typography and the, the script typeface that's been used has been kept with Coca-Cola ent the entirety of its existence. The same with the golden arches of McDonald's. Now, the branding that surrounds that has changed and there's you know other companies that have changed you know even their logo uh, even their logo typefaces and things within their brand identity touch points um, but it's always should be done when you're getting a new logo design it should be done in such a way as to be as timeless as possible so that was one of the goals when going in and creating this new logo design one of the things I did is I took a look at their previous one I, I took a look at what kind of made them unique and then I revamped it in such a way as to not only be fresh and, you know, new and modern and that sort of thing, but I was thinking forward that I wanted this logo because this is a logo type that was done. I also did a logo mark, which is kind of used as their avatar, but I wanted this to be as timeless as possible. I wanted them to be able to use this for years and years to come to the point where if they even decide to do another rebrand in the future, they don't have to start from scratch. They can stick to this logo design, uh, even if they have to change it mildly. So, you know, this is important to keep in mind if, you, you know, I've talked in the past about why I typically discourage against doing like a logo design contest. 
And the reason is because a lot of modern logo design today, especially those done through contests or through cheaper services, is all based upon trends. And when it comes to a logo design, a logo design is what you would call, as I referred to previously, a touch point, something that people interact with uh, in terms of your brand. A logo design isn't your brand per se. It's a part of your brand. It's a touch point. So the problem with a lot of logo designs of today's day and age is that they're done to follow trends. They see what, you know, gradients or, uh, you know, a glossy sheen look or, you know, different things that just go in and out with each season of web design or logo design. When a truly good brand and a truly good logo is meant, it's built to last, so to speak. You know, just like you're going to buy a car. If you're going to buy the very, very cheapest used model you can find, you can't really expect that to last as long as you would, say, a brand new car that's built from one of today's trusted brands. You'll expect that to last longer. You paid more for it, sure. Uh, however, it was built to last. The same concept applies to a logo design. And having one that's crafted in such a way as to be, you know, timeless and quality and doesn't just specifically follow the trends that are in vogue today. Okay, so timelessness was another very important part of that. And something that kind of goes hand in hand with the timelessness factor is versatility. So, you know, I mentioned things like gradients and, you know, a shiny look where there's really decorative or artistic logos. And sometimes these work. But one of the goals when creating a logo is that you want to make it very versatile. So I've, you know, when I was creating this logo, I had in mind that if they ever wanted to do, you know, like videos in the future or they wanted to be able to stamp images with this logo or they want to be able to just use the logo type for all their social media accounts, I wanted to keep all those things in mind. I also wanted to keep in mind, what's this logo going to look like in black and white? Will it translate over well, you know, or will these, you know, different colors or gradients get lost? And so that was all part of the thinking in terms of specifically the logo design, uh, not so much the website, uh, but when it comes to, you know, crafting a, a new logo design that's supposed to represent a brand Timelessness and versatility are two factors which are going to be key to that logo being successful. And again, I know I hate to harp on logo design contests as I've done in the past, but when again, when a designer is throwing something together in 15, 20 minutes in a, with a hope to win a contest, it's nearly impossible to, to uh, look forward enough to consider something like versatility and is this logo design still going to be relevant in 10 years? Okay, and the third and last thing I wanted to mention in terms of this rebrand, and again, you can take a look at the rebrand and the website itself at therightscoop.com. Uh, but the site itself, I wanted to make some improvements. So it was built from the ground up, uh, the theme that is, and I wanted to improve the speed in the reading experience. So it was very much simplified. All the background images were removed. Uh, logos and, you know, different aspects within the site uh, were are now SVGs. I've touched on those in the past. Again, probably do a full-length um, episode on the subject of SVGs and why they're worth replacing, you know, PNGs and other image formats. So logos and different images throughout the site were replaced with SVGs. I also included a font, um, a logo or icon font called Font Awesome, which I 
include with a lot of different themes that I develop these days, which again is going to be much lighter weight than using something like a PNG or having to load a whole bunch of different small images. So that was another improvement. And then also it just kind of, the, the goal was the overall look and feel of this site. I shifted away from, it kind of had a, it was very nice and it was, you know, something that their readership loved and adored. But the goal was to shift it away from that blog look to an actual news website look. So I incorporated things like trending articles. There's a big featured article now uh, on the front page. Uh, all the like and follow us buttons are now, you know, color coordinated with their specific, uh, you know, social networks. Also, there's a submit a tip area. So, you know, people can quickly and easy, easily submit them tips. So a lot of different things uh, were incorporated just to improve the overall user experience. In addition to the user experience is the reading experience also. So the typeface uh, was changed as well from the previous one to be a little bit more readable. The sharing buttons are now all completely custom. Uh, a lot of different things like that were just incorporated to make you know the readability of the site uh, taking it to the next level. So those are all things. So those are kind of three main uh, takeaways of things to keep in mind when doing a rebrand. And it's all kind of all inclusive. And this more applies to someone who's going to be doing a rebrand of a website. Uh, so, you know, things to keep in mind for the logo would be timelessness and versatility to make sure that that's going to be long standing and long lasting, making sure that it serves that brand justice. And then for the website, you're going to want, you know, things like improved speed and readability. I think one of the things I forgot to mention as well is that I incorporated a completely custom Ajax search feature. So when you click the search icon, you can start typing and it immediately brings up search results. Things like that, uh, making the user experience top notch uh, in tandem with a logo design is going to create an overall user experience and an improvement uh, for your brand without losing the original, you know, message and the original things for which that brand stood. So I hope uh, you found that useful. Uh, I just wanted to take a little bit of time and break through some of those things. You can just kind of get the thinking that goes on behind the process of doing a rebrand. It's very important to keep in mind, even if you're not going to be doing the rebrand yourself, to be aware of these things can be extremely helpful. So I've mentioned these in, in past episodes before, but if you have a question that you'd like answered here on the Rightly Design Show, I'm always uh, open to answering those. I had a chance to answer one uh, on the last episode that I did. So again, if you'd like to uh, ask your own question, you can do so at rightlydesigned.com slash question, and I'd be more than happy to take a listen and to consider it for a full-length episode. So again, I would like to thank you for listening to the Rightly Designed Show, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed Show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.